You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help me drive hard at the consciences of everyone who is watching and listening. We ask that you would stir repentance and faith in our hearts. And Holy Spirit, please make this sermon effectual for the life of every unsaved soul that will watch or hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people type, amen. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 19, Lord willing, we're going to look at verses 25 through 42 this morning. Please take out your Bibles and search the scriptures with me. We're in the New Testament, which is the last half, actually the last quarter of the book of the Bible. Don't be afraid to use your index to find John. Also, uh, inserted in the comment section, uh, there is a link to the Bible app and to sermon notes for today. And if you have a smartphone and you've downloaded the Version Bible app, Y-O-U version, you can go to the More tab, tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, uh, and then hit Today's Sermon Title. All right. Now, if you're outside the Habersham County area, you're going to need to search for Demarest, Georgia, that's D-E-M-O-R-E-S-T. And there you'll find the church. And then click on today's sermon title. And there's notes, quotes, references, uh, sometimes pictures that you can uh, save on your phone for future reference when you're studying John. John chapter 19, we're going to look at verses 25 through 42. And I'm excited to continue this series our Lord's Triumph, part six, and this part is entitled Victory. Victory. Today I want to preach to you a straightforward uplifting of the cross of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The cross is our greatest weapon. At the cross, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Christ. At the cross, sinners are humbled. We surrender our lives to Jesus and we exult in His undisputed supremacy. The cross, and you can write this down, is Jesus and our greatest victory. The cross is Jesus and our greatest victory. How so? Let me set the scene for you. We come to the crucifixion and we see three individuals lifted up upon three different crosses. Two on either side and one is in the center. All three of them suffer. All three of them languish. All three of them die. But the death of one is attended by strange circumstances and unknown agonies. 
Let's consider the Word. Let's just first read John chapter 19. And we're going to look at verses 25 through 27. And it says this, Standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother, His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple He loved standing there, and that's in reference to John, the author of the gospel, a disciple of Jesus and his best friend, and possibly his cousin. But when he saw John there, he said to his mother, and listen to what he said, Woman, here is your son. And then he said to his disciple, John, here is your mother. And from that hour, that moment, the disciple, John, took her into his home. The first scene that I want to walk you through as we get to Jesus' victory at the cross is I want you to see scene one, followers become family. Followers become family. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is probably in her mid to late 40s. She is probably a widow. Uh, Joseph, her husband, has passed some time ago. And she lives in a society, a patriarchal society, where women rarely earn much income. She is dependent upon her eldest son, in this case is Jesus, the man hanging on that center cross. She's dependent upon him for support. Here Jesus instructs his disciple and best friend John to care for Mary, his mother, as if Mary were John's own mother. John obeyed and took Mary to his own home. In fact, church tradition tells us that later they would both make their home church, the church of Ephesus, and both of them would die there. So what? This shows us something about Jesus, and he sets an example for all of us who are his followers to obey. Even in the midst of suffering and agony, we've talked about the flogging, the scourging, the mocking, the beatings, the humiliation, and then the excruciating pain of the cross itself. Even in the middle of all of that, Jesus was aware, He was conscious, and He demonstrated care to His mother. And then I want you to think about this glorious truth in giving John to Mary and Mary to John. Mother and son, son and mother. Christ was breaking the usual ties of family and the church was beginning. It's at the foot of the cross that followers become family. And I know as I'm preaching this, there are followers of Jesus Christ who feel the pains of not being able to meet with the family of God. We desire to be with mothers and fathers, sons and daughters in the family of God. And that's because, not not because of our uh, earthly affinities, it's because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled on the cross that creates a new family for you and me to join. And that's for any person. It doesn't matter male or female, rich, poor, black or white. All are welcome at the foot of the cross to join in the family of God. That's one of the reasons why the cross is Jesus' and ours greatest victory. 
Let's keep moving. Let's read John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. And it says this, After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then, bowing his head, and that can also be reclining his head. He could have rested his head. He gave up his spirit. Scene two. Write it down. It is finished. It is finished. Jesus was thirsty and simultaneously aware, conscious of fulfilling the prophecies about the Messiah, the one that was coming to be the King of kings, God's King, and the Savior of the world. Giving him this sour wine, and some translations read uh, wine vinegar, all right? This fulfilled a messianic portion of a psalm. It's Psalm 69, verse 21. It says this, Instead, they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Again, this psalm was written a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. But that's not the only significant fulfillment in just this small passage. Putting the vinegar-soaked sponge on the end of the stalk of a hyssop plant points to Jesus dying as the Passover lamb. And we've discussed this motif, this theme of Jesus being our Passover lamb. Now, if you're new to this, let me explain what the Passover is just quickly. Thousands of years before Jesus was born, Israel, the nation, was in slavery to Egypt. God, their God, the God of Israel, would judge the land of Egypt, everybody in the land, in order to set the nation of Israel free from slavery. And here's how he did it. He was going to send a plague of death to kill the firstborn sons of every household in the land. But they could be preserved. Those firstborn sons could be saved and delivered if, they, if those individual families slaughtered a lamb and applied the blood of that lamb to the doorpost of their house. And if they did that, trusting God's word and that instruction, then when God's judgment came, he would pass over the house. And that's where we get the name from. And that's exactly what happened. We read about it in the book of Exodus. God's judgment came upon a land. The firstborn sons of Egypt were killed. And that caused Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. Now what's interesting is if you go and read in Exodus chapter 12 verse 2. Hyssop is the instrument that was used to apply that Passover lamb's blood to the doorpost. It was hyssop. This is again pointing to that theme that we've been seeing in the book of John. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
We're not looking for uh, a country or national independence. We are longing for independence from being dominated by our sin. And what Jesus is doing, again, signifying on the cross, He is our true Passover lamb. He shed His blood, He sacrificed His life in order to forgive us of our sin, to erase them all, Uh, and cleanse us, and then also release us from being dominated by our sinful nature. One of the very last words that Jesus spoke from the cross is a single word in the Greek. The phrase, or our sentence, it is finished in the Greek, is tetelestai, tetelestai. And it does mean it is finished. It has other uh, connotations as well. It is accomplished. It is fulfilled. Or even they actually have some papyrus receipts that when someone paid a debt, they would write tetelestai across it, meaning it was paid in full. You reached the end. You made it to the, the intention, the goal, the design. What exactly was Jesus finishing? What exactly was Jesus accomplishing? What debt is he paying? What mission is he completing? Two things I want to bring to your attention. And we could spend all the live stream, all right, uh, diving in to the ocean of this one word. But I want to just focus on two things. One of the most Prominent themes right here just within John chapter 19 is how Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled all the Old Testament messianic prophecies, types, and shadows. All of the prophecies in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, they, are all, they all find their end, their telos, their goal. It all points to Jesus. Jesus is saying when he hangs on the cross, even think about it. He was conscious to the end about the part of being thirsty. He was genuinely thirsty, but he made that next step of effort to say, I'm thirsty. And there they handed the vinegar to him and he fulfills the prophecy. He does everything that he has to do to show himself to the world. He is the Messiah, the chosen one. The God's king, the savior of the world that's been prophesied in the Old Testament. But the one that I'm the most excited about, and that we could spend all time just surveying all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Here's the thing that you have to get today. Jesus accomplished our redemption. Jesus accomplished our redemption. You and I are sinners. We have broken God's law. We have trespassed past God's word. God has put up boundaries. He showed us what he expects out of us as he is the creator, we are the creature, and we have consistently fallen short of his glorious standard and expectation and we sin against him. The Bible says we are enemies, children of wrath, rebels. We are hostile in our minds and hearts to God's will and God's word. And because of this hostility, because of this enmity, between us and God, which we call our sin, these acts of defiance, living life our own way, out from under the authority of God, you and I, according to God's word, deserve judgment 
death, and hell. That is God's honest truth. And here's the sad part. We've been living in sin for so long. We are conceived in sin and we die in sin. That sin has impaired us and our faculties to no longer be sensitive to sin. And I want you to think about this. Jesus, though, fully man and fully God, was sinless. At the cross, God, this is what's happening in the heavenlies, in this spiritual realm, uh, on a cosmic scale. We call this the unknown agonies. Here's what's happening with the spiritual eye that the physical eye can't see at the cross. At the cross, God is charging all of your sin that you've ever committed and will ever commit, and all the sin that I've ever committed or will commit, He charged it all to Jesus at the cross. Now, no finite mind like yours or mine can ever fathom the agony of Jesus' sinless soul. Jesus knew no sin. He was, he was infinitely sensitive to sin. He is perfectly holy. And there in a moment on the cross, the eternal Son of God became the sinner. Your sin and my sin was put to Him. And as He stood for our sin, the blows of God's crushing wrath beat on His perfect, sensitive soul. Jesus bore, in our, bore our sin in his own body and then nailed that sin to the cross. The sting of death pierced through Jesus and fixed itself to the cross and was not able to pull itself out of the cross. Jesus grabbed the keys of death and clipped them on his belt. Every barrier, obstacle, bar, gate, that was between you and me and the love of God, Jesus tore down and rolled over. Jesus took, think of it like this, He took the cup of your sin and the hell that we deserve, He pressed it against His lips and began to drink, and He drank all the way to the very bitter last drop. And then He shouted the words that shook hell, comforted earth, delighted the Father, glorified Himself, brought the Holy Spirit down, and paved our way to heaven. It is finished. Then notice, to show you how absolutely sovereign and in control over this entire story that Jesus is, the Bible always makes clear that Jesus gave up His Spirit. It emphasizes the fact that his life was not taken from him. He is not necessarily a victim here. This is no surprise to him. He sacrificed himself. He laid down his life. And as the Son of God, he dismissed his spirit. He said, you can go now. No one on this earth can do that. Only God can give life and take life. And this even shows that Jesus is the Son of God. Why? Because after He completed it, after He got our redemption, He can, he can say, I'm done now. And He committed Himself. 
to the Father. The cross is Jesus's and our greatest victory. Let's go to scene number three, which is John chapter 19. And we're going to look at verses 31 through 37. Since it was the preparation day, this is Friday, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. For that Sabbath was a special day. It was a Passover Sabbath. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this, this is speaking of John, this has testified so that you, may, um, you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. I'll tell you why John had to make that statement uh, so uh, poignantly in just a moment. Verse 36, For these things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also another Scripture says, they will look at the one they pierce. Scene number three, soldiers fulfill Scripture. Soldiers fulfill Scripture. Roman soldiers allowed the bodies of the victims of crucifixion just to rot there on the cross. However, note, please pay attention to the timeline. It was close to Sabbath, which is Friday evening. This would be sometime probably after 3 o'clock and evening began around 6. Okay? The Sabbath was set apart for rest. You're to do no work on the Sabbath. And also, this is important, the Jews could defile themselves by on a Passover Sabbath, and this was generally true anyway, but especially during a Passover, a, a special festivity to celebrate their independence. According to Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, Deuteronomy 21 through uh, 22 through 23, to allow bodies, those who had been executed, to remain exposed on a tree overnight would not just defile the persons that were in contact with those dead bodies, but it also would defile the land, the nation. Defilement meant if you, if you worked on the Sabbath, if you touched the dead body, if you left the dead body hanging up, these are all part of uh, the Mosaic law. If they contracted this religious defilement, it meant that they would not be able to partake in the Passover festivities. So sundown's coming. Everything's got to be done before this uh, Passover Sabbath. Saturday's on its way, so to speak. We've got to hasten the death of Jesus. So when the soldiers hastened death, they would take an iron rod and they would hit the legs of those who were crucified. And what would happen is they would essentially suffocate. They could no longer lift themselves up on the cross to breathe. And they would die faster. faster. And in this way, the soldiers did not know this, of course. These are Romans. They're not Jews. They're not aware of the prophecies, they were actually fulfilling another messianic type or shadow. 
in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, it tells us that the Passover lambs of Exodus, what happens a thousand years ago, and even what they were about to do, the people during Jesus' time, what they were about to celebrate, that not one of their bones were to be broken. You cannot break the bones of that Passover lamb. And here again is John's way of of, uh, teasing out this motif, this theme, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and my sin. And then also, without knowing it, the soldiers fulfilled another scripture when they lanced Jesus instead of breaking his legs or bones. In Zechariah 12.10, it says, they will look upon the one whom they pierced. And I need you to know this. One day, a day, the day is coming where you and I will look upon Jesus and we'll see those nail-scarred hands, those nail-scarred feet, and that pierced side when He returns in glory. And for some of us, Yes, we'll be distressed that our sin has caused this to the Son of God, but we'll lift up our hands because our redemption has drawn nigh. Then others will look upon whom they've pierced in absolute disappointment because it's too late to turn and trust Jesus as their Savior. John wants to note here that the piercing made sure that Jesus was dead. John's testimony of this was to affirm the truth against heretics about denying Jesus' humanity and death. Now, we're not going to dive into the heretics of, their, of that day, the Gnostics and the Docetists, but we even do this uh, in our day when we talk about the historical Jesus and then the Jesus that we worship. There is no such separation. There is Jesus who is God and man. And this piercing that issued forth in blood and water, what he's trying to tell to the people of his day, yes, God came down in the flesh. God became a man. And with my own two eyes, I watched him die for our sins in the flesh. He suffered and died, shed his blood, and his water spilled out to cleanse us from all sin. This is an actual historical event. You can bank your life on it. Every detail of Jesus' crucifixion was carefully and certainly worked out by the hand of God. The cross is Jesus' greatest victory and it's also our greatest victory. And let's go to scene 4, John chapter 19. Verses 38 through 42. It says this, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because of the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus who had previously come to him at night, that's, I could go all day about the night issue, also came bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. And if you're saying, that sounds like a lot, it's a lot. They took Jesus' body 
and wrapped it in linen clothes with the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place. This is actually a garden that Joseph of Arimathea owns where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there. Again, notice why. Because of the Jewish day of preparation. It's Friday and the sun's going down. And since the tomb was nearby, they could, they could get Jesus over there quickly and not risk defilement by committing work on the Sabbath day and especially on Passover. Scene four. And this is a little tricky, but please stay with me. This is, this is good. Secret disciples are baptized in the burial of Jesus. Secret disciples are baptized in the burial of Jesus. I'll explain my thought behind that. Two secret disciples of Jesus came forward to take care of Jesus' burial. They both had feared persecution from the Jewish religious leaders, so they had not openly declared their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. They had not gone public about their private confession and commitment to Jesus. According to the tax collector, the disciple Matthew, in Matthew 25 through 57, Joseph of Arimathea was a very rich man. And then if you notice, Nicodemus here brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. And they sought Jesus undercover at night in John 3. Nicodemus, if you remember John chapter 3 where we have John 3, 16, Nicodemus comes and wants to learn more about Jesus but privately, not publicly. So he comes to him under the cover of night and tries to ask Jesus questions and he tells Nicodemus, well, don't you know you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Nicodemus has no clue. Remember he says, how can I go back into my mother's womb and come out again? That sounds silly. And Jesus talks about it being a spiritual rebirth. And he explains his mission. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so Nicodemus and Joseph, they're, they're very prominent figures uh, around that time. And they, they're watching Jesus and they're learning from Jesus. And ultimately they are following him but they haven't gone public with that commitment because of fear. But here's the beautiful thing. So remember, Nicodemus goes to Jesus in John chapter 3 at night. Now remember the time and place. As the sun is setting, right? The sun's going down on Friday. These two step into the light and identify with Jesus. They go public. They go, we're here for him. And they couldn't, they couldn't have done it at a better time. Now, and the reason being, again, God's orchestrating all of this. The significance of their extravagant burial is yet again, if you're still wondering, I mean, this is like John's just peppering you with all the prophecies and types and shadows that Jesus fulfilled. This is yet again another prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling. All right? This is from Isaiah 53, verse 9. He, this is a messianic psalm about the suffering servant. He, a messianic prophecy about the suffering servant. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Remember, he died as a criminal. And then notice this, but he was with a rich man at his death. He was given a royal burial. 
If you go look at how much myrrh and aloe was used, this is it's almost obscene what kind of burial this criminal in the eyes of the masses saw. And yet Joseph and Nicodemus treats him like a king. So what? The cross brought the secret disciples out into the public. If anyone wants to follow Jesus, what's he say? You got to pick up your cross and follow me. And I just, this is my sanctified imagination. I think when they, they've already kind of fell in love with Jesus behind the scene. And when they see his love demonstrated on the cross, the cross just pulled them out. Saying, come on, Joseph. Come on, Nicodemus. And there, think about it. These are two prominent Jewish leaders. They could have been excommunicated, persecuted, been victims of violence. This act of love and respect for their king Jesus was dangerous. It was costly. And it was with no personal gain. There's not a dime that got put back in their pocket. Today, now here's where I want to play with you for just a minute. Today, we don't identify with Jesus by physically burying him. Thank God we don't have that wonderful privilege, right? But what we do have is we do have a way to go publicly and identify with Jesus through a spiritual baptism. And that's, I mean, a spiritual burial, and that's baptism. In baptism, believers identify with Jesus publicly. But remember what we do. We are buried with him in baptism. We believe that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. And so we spiritually, by faith, identify with Jesus. And then what else do we do? As we'll find out in the text, we were raised up from the water to identify with Jesus. It is the way we go public with our faith. And I want to encourage you again, and and we've actually got some folks lined up, and if we need to do it digitally, we will. If you've not yet been baptized, if you've not come out into the light, stop being a secret disciple, stop wasting your life, give everything, put everything at the foot of the cross, surrender everything, pick up your cross and follow Jesus and be baptized, show the church and the world that you believe and identify with Jesus Christ. If John 19 ends, the Gospel of John, if we stop right there, Jesus' crucifixion is not victory, it's a tragedy. It's not the greatest act of love, it is the greatest injustice. John 19 ends with 42 identifying that it was the day of preparation. It was Friday. Well, let's look at chapter 20. But first, whoever is watching or listening, please trust the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Consider your attempts at righteousness as dung. My service and your service to God is imperfect. Our obedience to God will always be incomplete. Our love for Him will always be fluctuating. We will never love Him with all our mind, whole, um, heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
There is no amount of praying, church going, or giving that will make us acceptable to God. Think of it this way. You can't improve on perfect. You can't improve on perfect. God is not looking for that from us. He can't. He knows he will never find it. If he thought for a moment he could get it from us, he would have never sent his one and only son. You and I are sinners. We're sinners. You and I will never change that. But Jesus can. He accomplished our redemption. But if we reject Jesus, if you reject him today, you turn the video off, you turn the listening device off, whatever it is, your blood is on your hands. You have heard the good news that Jesus Christ died for you and me. But I also want you to think of this. If you turn to Jesus with just a little faith in Him, you can repeat His cry of victory. It is finished. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to give you the opportunity wherever you're at right now to turn from your sin. This is what we call repentance. Today you've come to acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you need forgiveness. And then you're going to redirect your life. You're going to follow Jesus. You're not going to be a secret disciple. You're going to identify with his death, burial, and resurrection for your sins and commit your life to him. And if you've never done that, or you're not sure, I want to lead you in a prayer. Now again, a prayer cannot save you. Only Jesus can. It's our trust that Jesus, and it just takes a little. Trust in Jesus to save you. Will you you pray this to him? He is God. He's not dead. He's alive. He can hear our thoughts and whispers. Would you just say, dear Jesus... I am a sinner and I deserve death, judgment, and hell. But I believe you love me. You came for me. You shed your blood and died on the cross for my sins. You accomplished my forgiveness, redemption, and salvation. And I believe God raised you from the dead to prove it. Please forgive me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. I redirect my life to follow you. If you prayed that prayer, I want to issue two next steps, right? If you want to learn more about Jesus and his story, go to our website, mtcarmeldemris.com, and you can hover over the home tab and look for Jesus' story. Click on that, and there's a short video that you can watch to get the story of Jesus. But the next thing, and I want to encourage you, no matter who you are, where you're at, if you've never been baptized, if you've never gone public, about your personal faith,
confession and commitment to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not too late. The sun hasn't set yet. And today you can go, go to mtcarmeldemers.com forward slash baptism or hover over the home tab and click baptism. Sign up for it right there. You'll see a sign up form and I will contact you about the next step of being baptized. We can do that. We can, we'll find a way to baptize you even in the middle of all of this. All right? Here's the next thing I'm going to do. I'm going to put up a video and a countdown. And I want to I give you a space for response. And there's two things that I'm the most concerned about if you already claim to know Christ. You're a baptized believer. You, you, you're public about your faith is one, I know sometimes we can drop back into legalism and, and we can really think that it's Jesus' work on the cross plus my attempts at doing good. And what was so refreshing to me this week is just to sit back for just a moment and rest in the finished work of Jesus. He did it all. So many times we, we kind of want to pick that up and, and take it upon ourselves. I want you to know if you're a believer... There is nothing more you can add to Jesus' work. He has done it all. It is a gift to you. And I hope that makes you relax, cause you to rest in Him, cause you to wait in Him, and cause you to bubble up with joy and rejoice. He is a good God. And then the other thing is, again, I, I think this is a time, an unprecedented time in which we can leverage the gospel to a church. I'm sitting in here with nobody, okay? We are literally out on the world wide web. <laughs> All of us are right now, right? Looking for some type of social connection. And there are millions all over these channels and platforms who have never heard that Jesus finished their salvation for them accomplished redemption, that they can be forgiven. That simple, pure uplifting of the cross of our Savior in God. I am not, I'm not begging you uh, to, for, to share these things for popularity's sake. We have the chance, maybe more now than ever, to see the gospel reach people that normally would not come to the gospel hearing in traditional ways. Please, please share these messages. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.